0: We welcome, we, welcome we, welcome we welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome
1: your ears. Over the centuries, most major transformations have not come from the top. They've come from common revolt, the storming of the Bastille, the Russian Revolution. Change, significant change, generally is begun at a ground level, not at the top.
0: Well, that has been so in the past. My question is is it still so, or? Have we isolated people to such an extent that we cannot get together as groups, as communities, as societies, and make those kinds of sweeping demands?
1: You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noce and Harry Posner. Episode 184, pH Factor, Citizen Can. Is human transformation possible? Come on in. Have a seat. Join the conversation.
0: Good morning, Harry. How are things in Nova Scotia? Good morning, Peter, in Ontario. Things are, well, it's a bit of a blustery and wet day today. Uh, We have workers building a barn and putting up paddocks, but they're mostly taking a break today because of the weather. So it's one of those indoor days where you get to thinking and meditating and doing quiet stuff. It's a good day to be inside.
1: And you're undergoing a transformation. The transformation continues from Ontario to Nova Scotia and rebuilding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Physical transformation of the property, psychological transformation in terms of adjusting to the way of life here, which is a bit different from Ontario. It's a kind of a notch less hectic, which is a good thing for me and making friends and connecting into the community. We went to a corn boil the other day, a community corn boil, (laughs) (laughs) which happens once a year at the community center here in Woodville. And we got to meet a lot of our neighbors who came by and touched base, found out where people were from, where they were born, how they got here, why they came here, what they're doing, that sort of thing. And then they got a chance to find out who we are so it's a nice gesture for the community to do that, to bring people together. And in the wintertime, they have sort of coffee gatherings like that too, indoors in the center where the community can just hang out together and uh, relax. It's only about 200 people live here, Peter. So it's a small community for sure. It's a farming area and uh, an apple farming area as well. So lots of orchards in the region. It's in the Annapolis Valley. In the Annapolis Valley is kind of the breadbasket of Nova Scotia and apple country for sure.
1: And speaking of transformation, because you're definitely now a member of Citizen Can, and you're undergoing the transformation yourself from Ontario to Nova Scotia to rebuilding your home. Yeah, and you can speak personally on this subject because you're in it right now yourself.
0: Sure. So we're going to be talking about evolution in a way today, and the question being, can humanity evolve given the current state of the world. And there's no question that individuals like you and I and whoever can evolve as we change and move and grow older and all that. The question really is, can we do it as a society, as a large gathering of people? Can communities change? A collective change. Yes, exactly. That's the question we can pose today. As we talk about various examples of change or obstacles to change that are in front of us, and there are lots of examples of change that has happened and change that has been thwarted, let's say, through history.
1: hmm maybe we begin with comparison of individual versus group catalysts. Mm-hmm. People like Rosa Parks, Greta Thunberg, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, to name a few.
0: Yeah. And these folks stood out. As kind of exemplars of a certain way of viewing the world, whether it's through peaceful opposition in terms of Gandhi, who accomplished, in a sense, the freeing of India from British rule, whether it's Rosa Parks standing up for herself at the back of that bus and refusing to go there and be that type of human being, and was the forerunner of major civil rights change in the US. So it is possible to make these changes. Now, someone like Greta Thunberg. You could argue that she is one of that group, but I suspect that maybe she isn't, because it seems to me that her exhortations are kind of falling on deaf ears mostly, wouldn't you think?
1: Yes, in a way, or at least there's a distinct division between those who support her and those who kind of ridicule or demean her in some ways. Yeah. I think the issue is also understanding the era And the times in which that particular individual is putting themselves on the forefront. I think that Greta Thunberg has much more to contend with in terms of the technological factors which surround her versus the other people. Well, there's an immediate exposure, there's no time for translation of information or for things to sort of seep in or to question things are immediately brought to the surface, sometimes before information even gets out. So an event happens or she says something, and there's an immediate visceral response without perhaps digging into what's behind everything.
0: Right, right. So we've become a reactive society in general. I think
1: we have in many cases. I'm not saying that everyone's like that, but I think there's a response nowadays which is so quick, that is often undermines the actual message being presented or the complete picture so to speak
0: yeah which prevents a kind of deeper thinking about these subjects about the climate in that case or about civil rights in the case of rosa parks or about the state of modern medicine if it's about covid and what happened there right so all of these underminings of deep thinking prevents a kind of forward movement of The human race, it seems to me.
1: Not just deep thinking, you have to allow for time. Most transformations that you talk about, major transformations over the centuries and millennia, transformations take time. They don't happen in a day or in a week. Yeah. And nowadays, technology has sped things up so much that it's distorting the sense of time and our patience
0: even to see
1: things develop.
0: Well, sure. I mean, if you look at evolution from nature's point of view, these evolutionary changes that we've seen in many cases take billions or millions of years. And it's almost impossible to see evolution as it's happening because of the time frame. So there's a similarity there to human evolution, although it seems a bit quicker now because societies can change much more rapidly at least on the surface, due to the influence of technology and social media, etc. So it seems like there's great change happening around us, but maybe we are not actually evolving so much as changing on the surface of things. That's a question.
1: That's an excellent question. Also consider, let's take an event that we're all familiar with regarding electric cars. We know them now, but they've been evolving. Yep since the middle of the 1800s. And I'm sure many people aren't aware of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was looking into it, I was shocked as well. So what? They've been around since the 1800s? How is this possible? And I thought, so what happened? Why didn't electric cars become the form of transportation for most societies? And when you dig into it, you see that it was the development of the Model T Ford, mm-hmm. uh, the Henry Ford's company produced. And they produced it so cheaply And made it accessible so cheaply that the economics of it won out over the environmental benefits. So that slowed it down substantially. And then, of course, the electric car came back again, began to evolve again in the 60s, 70s. And just
1: to put it into perspective, by 1912, a gasoline car cost about $650. While an electric roadster, which could have been available then sold for about 1750, which is about three times the price. Yeah. So many of our transformations in that sense, technological, are determined primarily by economic factors, which is not something that is always in our best interest from other standpoints. <laughs>
0: yes, that's perfectly true. So the bottom line for people is how do I survive? And if it means purchasing a vehicle that's three times less pricey, then you go there. So, I mean, I don't blame people for doing that ultimately because people have to think about their own survival and their family's survival. But when it comes to the larger issues of the planet, which didn't really come into fashion until maybe the 1960s with the environmental awareness growing from that point on, and also larger issues like globalism. Back in those days, in the 1900s, or the 18, middle 1800s, people just didn't think those thoughts very often. So you can't blame them in that sense, but you can blame culture now, people now, because people are, are much more aware and should be aware of the larger issues involved with any decision they make economically.
1: What actually provokes evolution, and I think you referred to irritants of sorts, <laughs> we tend to need catastrophes to undergo or to push us to make changes.
0: Well, that's the thing, Peter, because in the natural world, evolution tends to happen when, let's say, there's some foreign influence that changes an ecosystem. Well, the members of that ecosystem have to adjust and evolve to meet that irritant, that change, that invader, if you like, if that's what it is. And that's how evolution is understood to happen in the natural world. And we're part of the natural world, of course. But our irritants tend to be catastrophes, traumas, climatic disasters, wars, and that sort of thing that provokes larger shifts and changes on the planet. So my question really is, can we evolve without those major catastrophes having to happen are we doomed to sitting around waiting for catastrophes in order to change how we view and live in the world
1: great question so i guess uh, we begin perhaps with our own individual or collective obstacles to actually even initiating a transformation what is it as human beings what are our limitations Mm. that perhaps hinder our ability to
0: transform. Well, I mean, one of them is brain research. We can go to brain research because there was an interesting article recently that I came across that looked into the way the brain works visually for human beings. And what it tends to do is because being visually aware of everything around a person in the moment can be so chaotic and confusing and so overwhelming, what the brain does is it actually Kind of goes back about 15 seconds and takes the visual patterns that were recognized in those 15 seconds, and it kind of stabilizes our visual landscape in that past view of reality so that we're not overwhelmed by the chaotic play of visual light and form and texture that we see in the moment. So it sends us backwards in time, if you like to stabilize our visual view. So there's that happening. So balancing that, you have technology, which is overwhelmingly present in the world, and it is evolving at a rapid pace forward. So there's this pull with technology throwing us forward into the future, but our brains actually dragging us backwards with each perceptual moment. There's a strange push-pull To me, it's not a surprise that we're all kind of schizophrenic in some ways.
1: (laughs) No, because we're lagging in many ways. What you just described is much like a film or even this podcast. The editing of it, you have many fragments that you piece together to make some flow of everything. Whereas the total finished product flows smoothly as a film editor works. Yeah, There are multiple pieces that are put together to create this smooth finish. Yeah. which allows you to experience the movie as a flow instead of fragments. And we, as you mentioned, uh, with the brain function, the stability factor comes from our brain constantly welding pieces together rather than seeing individual fragments or individual sections of things. Right. I do believe that complacency increases the more comfortable we become. So if you increase the standard of living for larger and larger numbers of people who take a great deal of comfort in possessions, in things that give at least temporary comfort, I think it's more difficult to create a situation that requires transformation simply because You don't have to immediately respond to anything.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing. Given that that's the case in much of the developed world, you would think that with our basic needs being met more readily, more easily in many cases, and that survival is not the main thing on our plates, that we would have time to think more deeply about our reality, our world, and how it could be changed and should be changed. But what happens is in that vacuum, social media comes in, the legacy media fills the gap with all kinds of distractions, right?
1: Yeah, the media focuses our attention on the world around us, as you mentioned, and it has a a huge impact on the way we see things because we're often being distracted towards or from a serious understanding of things. We're skimming surfaces more. Yeah. You can't really change many things
0: if your entire view is superficial. Well, sure, absolutely. So when do we get a chance, an opportunity to get together as community and to think deeply about the issues that surround us and how to approach them and change them? COVID over the last two years has prevented the gatherings of people Whether it's in cafes or community centers, which in the old days, let me say the olden days, that's where change would happen. People would talk about a new idea for the community and it would start to make the rounds and gradually it would take and then the community would make the change. But if you can't get together as human beings in groups, or if you're isolated behind your computer screens, scrolling through social media all day, there's no opportunity To share those ideas with your immediate neighbors, your immediate community. And it becomes much more difficult to make change that way. Social media is all well and good to get ideas out there. But the way social media works is the idea is introduced and then five seconds later, it's scrolled away. It scrolls away. It just disappears.
1: Well, I think generally speaking, there has been a degradation in that sense. However, I also believe that out of these situations arise individuals or group of individuals who learn from and extrapolate and create and do begin a process of transformation on a smaller scale, which tends to spread out perhaps more slowly simply because many of the things that are happening are not being backed by the media because it may not be politically or economically advantageous to do so. That's our constant, I believe, especially in the developed world. And in third world countries, too, that are quickly evolving and changing and raising their standards of living and reducing poverty and so on, the same things apply. The same things are happening.
0: Well, it also has to do with a kind of traditional hierarchical view of society, which goes back forever to the pharaoh and kings and queens and monarchs of all kinds, emperors, where society has been a top-down decision-making pyramid for a long, long time. And that hasn't changed, really. We elect our officials and we call them servants of the people, but we would still put them up near the top of any triangle of power that we have in society. And we trust that the higher ups have our best interests at heart. It was a very interesting video by Neil Oliver, the Scottish commentator that I just saw today, where he talked about our reliance on the top people to make wise decisions on our behalf and how maybe we've been taken for a ride all this time. And that that trust is maybe not necessarily warranted and that we should rethink the way society functions in terms of how we make decisions and who makes those decisions. Technology has become the go-to god for finding solutions to everything. We trust implicitly that technology will find answers to pretty well everything, all of our problems, I think. That's deep down now in many people.
1: Over the centuries, most major transformations have not come from the top. They've come from common revolt, the storming of the Bastille, the Russian Revolution. Change, Significant change generally is begun at a ground level, not at the top.
0: Well, that has been so in the past. My question is, is it still so? Or are you suggesting that we shouldn't look for any large evolutionary pushes from the complacent, well-fed Western nations, that it will only come from people who are really dissatisfied with their lives and with their governments, etc.
1: Again, are you a top-down or bottom-up kind of thinker? Say more. Are you expecting the people in charge to instigate and create an environment for these changes, or are you expecting the response of the masses to initiate that change?
0: Those people you're talking about at the top, who are in charge, so to speak, Mm -hmm. they are us. They are us. They are from us. They grew up like I did, and then decided at one point that they wanted to enter politics. But they're human beings like us. They know what compassion is. They know what love is. And the question I have is, why does it seem that whenever there's top-down decisions? those important human characteristics seem to kind of fall by the wayside a bit. And it all falls back to economics,
1: usually. Not just economics, Harry. When you eliminate the sense of community, you also increase the amount of anonymity and accountability. You are now in a much bigger system where things can be hidden, things can be passed on to other people. Yeah, but it's not like a small community where you meet the person who did the act and you know each other. Sure, and you can talk to each other immediately and resolve it there on the
0: spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of the other obstacles in place that confronts our evolution, our push to evolution, is the creation of institutions and the kind of hardening of institutions into bigger and bigger monolithic structures in society. Until those institutions start to diversify and soften and kind of break apart a little bit, it's very hard to shift the way society moves because those institutions are everywhere and they tend to control what we can and cannot do.
1: Exactly. We need to decentralize. We need to make smaller portions. (laughs) And I think that's kind of happening in some ways because look at yourself. You've moved to a different province. You've started a new life. There are more and more people doing that. Up until recent years, the move has always been to the cities for the last 150, 200 years. (laughs) For the first time in recent years, that's begun to reverse a little bit.
0: Yeah. As people move out of the cities and begin to experience nature in its wilder form, that's something that could be a beneficial, let's say irritant, (laughs) because it can be an irritant if you're not used to the way nature works. Or not in touch with nature, it can be an irritant that pushes us to evolve further. Look at my working with horses. In the last three weeks, I've come very close to being injured by horses that have reared up or startled and moved suddenly. Mm -hmm. These things make a person become more super aware of their environment and of the animal and that the ground one is standing on and my inner comportment to them as well. All of that gets stirred up when you're working in nature and becoming more in touch with it. So I have to thank nature for the evolution that I'm experiencing now, small as it is and slow as it is, being a city slicker. (laughs) Yeah. I have to thank nature for doing that. And more people, as you say, are moving in that direction. And that's a good thing, I think, because in the rural communities, there tends to be a bit more sense of community, I think, going on than in the inner cities.
1: Well, by its very nature, it requires more collaboration, more cooperation. And the thing you just described, which is the fundamental thing of change, the awareness level has to be there first. You can't change something if you're not aware that there's even a problem to begin with. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a problem. It could be something that's already good and you just want to transform it into something better or something different. (laughs)
0: So it's a matter of moving out of our complacency with what is, looking at what's out there that's already good and making it even better and trying to make it even better. We can just look around us and say, how can I make the world better as I see it right now?
1: And better is very different from more. We live in a world of more. Yeah. More what? More houses, more cars, more, I'm talking on a per unit basis here, because if you've got more people, you need more things. But The amount of stuff, the amount of things that we create, it's not necessarily making it better. If I make a pot that I can fix over and over again versus throwing it out and replacing it six times in a 10-year period, I have a very different world.
0: Yes. And Charles Eisenstein makes a similar point when he talks about our search for alternative sources of energy. What he says is that the emphasis shouldn't necessarily be on finding alternative sources of energy. It should be on asking ourselves how we work with energy. What are we doing with it? Do we need as much of it as we think we do, for example? And that, that should be the emphasis, not on trying to find new sources on the planet to exploit, because every source is. We talked about every new technological development that depletes resources and makes the world seemingly better has downsides. So it's how we use the energy, not whether we can get more of it.
1: And the how to applies to everything, technology included. The smartphone that we talk about constantly because it's so ubiquitous now and such a central part of most of our lives. Yeah. The smartphone itself is actually very good as long as you're cognizant of the fact that it's a tool, it's something that can enhance your life or make things easier. But if you completely buy into it and you get absorbed by all the negative aspects of the phone, the phone no longer has that same value. It's now detrimental to you. Like many things, like food, like exercise, all of it, it always comes down to, I'm going to say it again, balance.
0: (laughs) 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 I think that's the word that's going to be on your tombstone, balance.
1: Even when you bring up the word balance, that's very subjective. Balance for you might be very different than balance for me. But the way nature works, the entire universe always strives for that. So we're playing with things and we're trying to change them to accommodate us rather than understanding what it is and going with the flow.
0: (laughs) And the question then is, can we as individuals come together over shared visions, shared stories of a better world and consciously evolve toward that rather than waiting for a top-down solution or a technological solution or some catastrophe to happen that forces us. That's the question at hand, I think, for us as a humanity overall.
1: Well, to focus more on shared things rather than opposing things. mm <laughs> sure where the focus is on what we are working towards, not about what is it that we don't want to happen.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And a reminder to all listeners that we really love your comments. Please send along comments, respond, leave an audio comment, and any donations are also, of course, welcome, since we are advertising free here at The Sill. And so on that note, uh, Harry, I bid you ciao. I bid you ciao, too. Ciao, ciao. Over
1: and out. (laughs) Thanks, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.
0: Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.